Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We've got some very turbulent and fast-moving news today to discuss. Uh, Ronaldo, how about we start with the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia? Sure, and, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in. It's um, an interesting uh, February. We, we are doing this show on February 16th, so if you need some timing on that, that's where we're at. Um, and because of that delay, which we took this, week, this, this month, we were able to get the Scalia story in, which I think is really important. Uh, I want to start by making a statement. First of all, Justice Antonin Scalia clearly was a witty man, and clearly he was somewhat personable. He had a lot of friends. Uh, that is not to say, however, that he wasn't a very dangerous human being. And for 30 years, he disguised his version of strict constructionism, which he called originalism, meaning I'm only looking for the original meaning in the Constitution. He disguised his own right-wing philosophical beliefs because he is an idea he was an ideologue and what he did for 30 years with his intelligence is continually drag the court further and further from what any reasonable definition of strict construction there's nothing in the in, in, in by the way when he was asked to defend the decision of Gore v Bush where the Supreme Court did the unlikely thing of telling the state of Florida to not count the votes in a presidential election when he did that, and he was confronted by how could that be constitutional, he said, so we did so there, and took the next question. <laughs> now, is that I, true? That's that is what he true. said? That's what he said. Wow. And it's on film. So the question is this. What is it about the way the current conventional media, and frankly, cable media, what is it about the way they're drinking the Kool-Aid that, that because someone is nice, they're willing to let them get away with wholesale mass destruction of human values, particularly American human values. And I really believe that second to none in the last 30 years, Antonin Scalia is the reason why here are some of the things that no longer are true. It's no longer possible to survive as a family of four on the salary of one person. In the last 30 years, it's become impossible for anyone in the 98% to see their income going up or their life getting easier. In the last 30 years, it's become impossible for people to look at their children and believe honestly that their children have a better future coming than they had. In the last 30 years, it's become impossible to go to college without graduating with bone-crushing debt. In the past 30 years, we have absolutely remade the American marketplace into something controlled by fewer and fewer companies. Does big too big to fail sound interesting? If it does, remember, there are fewer too big to fail banks today than there were when the too big to fail banks were bailed out in 2008 and 9. They're bigger. Yeah. They're bigger. And there's fewer of them. So what's happened is we've allowed a consolidation. We've allowed the American government to be hijacked, I believe by some of the most retrograde forces of greed. And they never had a better shill or representative than the very brilliant Antonin Scalia. So let me, let me slow you down there and just get, the, get this all straight. Uh, Antonin Scalia was one of 
nine justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, but you're saying he had an outsized role in a lot of that that transition away from uh, a more just economy and a, a more just set of uh, social norms. Can you can you go into that a little bit more? Sure. His outsized role stemmed from the fact he's really really bright. Was really really bright. And because he's the longest serving judge when he died, he'd been around the longest, and everybody else walked in the room. So what he did consistently, year after year, month after month, was use his intellect to shape the conversation to where things we never thought would be even remotely possible became unavoidable. I'll give you just one example. Uh, Citizens United. If you were to list the three worst decisions in the history of the United States Supreme Court, you'd have to pick the Dred Scott decision, which gave rise to the Civil War. Separate but equal. Oh, sorry. No, Dred Scott was... Sorry, Brown versus Board. Dred Scott was basically what gave rise to the Civil War because the the court at that time, the uh, court decided as a political matter, it was better to permit slavery than to try and stop it. Right. And if you read the decision in that case, which was appalling, um, that court, I think, was motivated by politics, i.e., you know, let's not let the slave states leave the Union. So the, they, the, they, they came up with this incredibly crazy decision, which within two years ended up in the Civil War. Uh, the second worst decision, or right in the same league of the top three bad ones, was Gore v. Bush. We've never had a situation in all these years where the Supreme Court literally stopped a presidential election because the wrong guy, in their view, was going to win. So Gore won the popular vote, as you recall, and was about to win the electoral vote if Florida counted its votes. The Supreme Court intervened in that election and said, don't count the votes, thereby denying Gore the, state, the, the country of, of, of Florida, the, the state of Florida. And as a result, Bush became the president. Of course, we know what happened as a result of that. The worst recession since the Great Depression, um, the Iraq War, uh, weapons of mass destruction, the destabilization of the Middle East, and I could go on and on. NSA spying, yeah. Yeah, yeah NSA and spying. So anyway, my point is... That decision, Bush v. Gore, there's no way a strict constructionist would say that the Supreme Court should pick who should be president. And yet Scalia was the key driver behind that decision and justified it with his intellect. Clarence Thomas could not write an opinion if his life depended on it. So he would do as he would lean to Scalia to articulate for his basically knee-jerk retrograde reactions. Um, In a similar vein, the third case I would put in that, so you got the... Case that started the Civil War, Dred Scott. You got the case that said, we're going to pick the president you don't get to. That's not strict construction. And then you got the case called Citizens United, which came up with this appallingly crazy decision that somehow unlimited money in, in political campaigns could not affect the outcome. When, of course, that would affect the outcome. The only reason you would take that place, that position, wasn't because you believed inherently that money is speech, because money isn't speech. Oh, and by the way, corporations aren't people. Corporations don't die. People do. One of the reasons why corporations have a charter is because you're supposed to keep them under control by people. Corporations have become the reverse. They've become what controls people rather than vice versa. And we should talk about that on this show some point. But that decision, Citizens United, and I said on this radio program in October, that decision came down in November, I said on this program, if that decision goes the wrong way, and it did, it will be the end of the American democracy as you know it, and that is what has happened. So we have a situation today where dark money from undisclosed donors in massive quantities is allowing, I think, something like 
over 50%, something like 55% of all the money spent in this presidential campaign season came from 10 people. That's amazing. So, so what you're saying is, you, you, this, is, this is worse than oligarchy. This is plutocracy. So what we need to do is look at Scalia and look at what he has subjected our country to. Now, I could take fault with Alito. I forgot one thing. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. The the one case I was thinking of, of course, was Plessy versus Ferguson that established separate but equal and uh, public uh, public school segregation, which was overturned later. So that was another one that I would add to the list. Yeah, well, but see, but the reason why I don't consider that one of the worst of all time, yeah, the implications of that, like a lot of decisions that get reversed, was that it was a bad decision, but it didn't forever change the character of education. What Citizens United has done is forever change the character of political elections in a democracy, theoretically. It could be reversed. It could and should be reversed. But yeah. my point is, it, it, it ha, it, we have already built a new system out of it, a system of unlimited money. Super PACs. And super PACs. Unlimited corporate Unlimited potential. corporate contributions. Unlimited. I mean, who listening to this program thinks that the amount of lobbying done in this country by business is acceptable in a democracy? I can't believe people think that's right. I can't believe that they think it's okay that the largest corporations can employ thousands and tens of thousands, actually, of accountants, thousands and thousands of lawyers, thousands and thousands of lobbyists, all to shape the rules so they get to win. Okay? Somebody has calculated there's a trillion dollars of money sitting offshore untaxed by corporations. And the, and, and the solution, they say, is let them bring it back without a tax? No. The solution is make them leave it there. And by the way, while you're at it, why don't we pass a tax on earnings of corporations who are domiciled in the United States who get the benefit of our laws, wherever that cash is kept? You know, I think it's time to re-examine the way that our, our tax laws are being subverted. Yeah. Okay. So there isn't a single aspect of society that doesn't get adversely affected when you subvert the political process. I'm seeing a, a $2.1 trillion estimate for overseas tax. I think that's probably. Exploit. I think that's much more accurate. Uh, people say it's in the trillion dollar range. Is it one? Is it two? I'll tell you one of the reasons they don't know. Who's keeping track? Right. How do you know it's not even larger? Yeah. So I mean, I'm not going to give a number because I can't measure it. But I know it's in the trillions, and it's outrageous. I can't park my money offshore and not pay tax in it. Why should large corporations? So my point is, when you pervert the democratic system in a democracy, you destroy the country. That's why that's worse than Plessy versus Ferguson in my mind. And if it does get reversed, and I hope it does, think of all the laws that will have been written, all the tax codes that will have been written, even when you reverse that. Now you got to go back and take and wind all that. With Plessy versus Ferguson, you only had to do one thing. Hey, separate isn't equal. So I'm really a big believer that what Scalia did was absolutely deplorable. It was wrong. He knew he was doing it. It was nothing to do about strict construction. It was about his political view of life. In his, in his dissent in June, he wrote that the court would be well advised to get at least one evangelical and somebody from the Southwest. We used to have one from the Southwest, but she left the court. So we, we, you know, his, his whole idea, and, and I, I do find sympathy with the idea that he finds it offensive that he and every other justice on the court went to Harvard or Yale Law School. I do find some sympathy with that because I went to UCLA Law School. But, you know, I don't think going to Harvard Law is the problem. I think the problem is if you believe this country is better run by a few with enormous resources for the benefit of the many, what you will get is the country we have 
where since 1970s, 95% of the economic benefit this country has this country's created since the 70s has gone to the top 2%. That's wrong. Yeah. That's not democracy. Yeah. And you know, not to harp on Plessy versus Ferguson here, but the the outcomes haven't changed all that much. One one thing, you know, during Scalia's reign and something that would have would have probably got knocked down by the conservative court is efforts to actually undo separate but equal in reality, not just in law. There, you know, schools are actually more desegregated uh, than they ever were in some areas of the country. So we've got a long way to go, and, and a lot of those kind of efforts were uh, taken apart by the, the yeah, Supreme Court. And, and don't forget, it wasn't just what Scalia wrote on the bench. It's the people he hung around with and planned strategy. So he strategized with the Koch brothers how to unwind our political system. He strategized with endless numbers of what Hillary used to call the vast right-wing conspiracy on how to hijack the court, on how to, how to move through the process so that the court would defend these, these improper takings, improper takings okay? including all the gerrymandering. And, and what's really interesting here is, and Hillary called it best, she's, they, they asked her, do you still really believe there's a vast right-wing conspiracy? She said, sure, except it's not a conspiracy anymore, it's everywhere. And Justice Antonin Scalia was the chief articulator from that branch of government that enabled that conspiracy to become overt and literally to take over the United States of America, who is now being run. I mean, we are being run by a plutocracy. Now, we've got to change that if we want to. But today, as I sit here, we're a plutocracy. We're not a democracy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's also important to look at the reaction to the passing of, of Scalia um, the Republicans immediately in their debate later that day or the next day pledged to block any appointments. That day. It was the same day. That day. As soon as they heard he was dead, Mitch McConnell, majority leader of the Senate, said we will block any nominee that Obama puts forward. The next president should pick the Supreme Court justice. Well, first of all, where does he get off saying that? Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution doesn't say that. In fact, I'm, I, I, I was sharing with you earlier, Matt, I, I'm really ticked off at the, at the shallowness of the media. So I heard on a reputable channel, not Fox, a reputable channel, Article 2, Section 2, misquoted extensively. And the commentator who purported to, who has a law degree, was saying, well, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, 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 it's the president's job to nominate somebody and the Senate's job to confirm. Well, actually, that's wrong. According to Article 2, Section 2, it is the president's job to appoint the justices of the Supreme Court with the advice and consent of the Senate. So for the Senate to say, we won't even advise, we refuse to do our constitutional duty to even have a hearing, let alone a vote, means that they are obstructing the Constitution. That's unbelievable, but it's actually normal now. Right. And, you know, if, if, if they are, Rachel Maddow actually pointed this out as well, I was listening to her show this morning, if, if they actually were to block any appointment by Obama uh, for the entire length of the rest of his term, which is almost a year now, it would be the longest vacancy on the Supreme Court since the Civil War. And the, it, reason, and the reason there was a vacancy of over a year then was because there was a Civil War. Right. I mean, this is, that's how bad it's gotten. Well, no, that? we're having a Civil War right now. I, you know, Matt, my belief is the Civil War never ended. See, people think the Civil War was about bullets between the South and the North. That wasn't the Civil War. It wasn't even about slavery. The Civil War was a battle between one view of how life should be, which was plantation-based, 
was very hierarchical. In the Old South, there, every, all the money was held by 1% or 2% of the people. That's how it worked. And everybody else was very down the ladder, barely, barely surviving, which is what it is today, or slaves, which is also what we have today, economic slavery. So, so you have this plantation mentality, which was the South, uh, versus the industrial mentality of the North. And it was a clash of cultures. It was a true class of cultures. The North was saying every guy could get, is entitled to a job in the factory and a reasonable wage. And Does it sound like today? And the South was going, oh, old Dixie, we like it where there's a guy, there's a master in the plantation house and we all work for him. And that clash of cultures did not end at Appomattox with the succession of hostilities. It continued on to this day and you constantly see remnants of it, whether it's the Confederate flag that just came down in South Carolina or whether it's the ongoing battles uh, with the 559 quasi-Ku Klux Klan, but they call themselves militias that are armed in, in armed, in, in armed against the federal government, by the way. Bundy makes no bones about it. He's armed against the federal government. That's, that's secession. So now, and that whole thing in Oregon, was Bundy's son doing the same thing? Well, what's this about, this, 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 this war between the North and the South? It's about whether or not we in the United States of America will choose to let the values of the South control us into the next generation. It's time we end the Civil War, and I think we have to do it at the ballot box. Yep. We have got to go to the ballot box in such overwhelming numbers that you'll never again see this nation embarrassed by the debate I saw of the Republican candidates who called each other liars at least a dozen times, who engaged in profanity routinely, who argue absolute craziness and nonsense. I mean, I could go on and on. The bottom line is, it's time for the people of this country to go to the ballot box and elect people of any party. I'm not restricting this to Democrats. Elect this people of any party who stand for restoring democracy, restoring our system of economics, restoring fair play, restoring the belief that we have that everyone's entitled to a decent wage, good education, and not having to go broke in the process. And I would add, restoring the confidence that some of us hold that if we put our mind to it, this country could do amazing things to help restore the uh, environment. Absolutely, we would. In fact, my, you know, my, my fondest wish is that the South will secede. And for those of you who are students of history, you know that Texas, when it entered the Union, preserved the right to secede and not be fired upon. So if Texas left the United States, it could do so of its own volition. I say, let them go. And I hope they take with them every other southern state that wants to have, you know, that wants to cheat, that wants to teach, that wants to become a Christian nation, doesn't want Jews, doesn't want Muslims, uh, that wants to deny the vote to women, wants to make abortion illegal, wants to uh, teach that Jesus walked with the dinosaurs in their school books, or not even have school books, or not even have schools. <laughs> okay, let them do that in the South, because we don't make money on the South. We give them more money than we tax them for. So. If the rest of us were left alone to our own devices and the South just broke off and became the country that they want, this provincial, parochial, and as I said, plantation, so a provincial, parochial, plantation mentality, if that's what they want, great. You go be slaves in that country or an overseer at best, which is lower than a middle-class wage, and we will go forward in our country unrestricted by you, and we will have clean air, clean water. All of our students will go through college for free, all of our students, everybody will have universal health care. We will teach 
the best science in the world will go from the 26th or whatever it is in health to the number one in health again at a cost of a fraction of what we're spending. All of these things are not only doable, they're unavoidable if you conduct yourself in a humane way consistent with our democratic values. But you won't get there if you are constantly hobbled by a parochial provincial plantation mentality, which is the South and which has never declared peace with the North. Now, we've gone through this uh, conversation. It's been a while since we've talked about this, but at first I was somewhat uh, put off by the idea of letting the South secede, if only for the fact that there's, you know, all these states are actually purple states. Uh, You know, it's not a fine line between these different mentalities and who's in charge, right? So, like, our country is made up of 40, 60 splits in some areas of people who want to restrict abortions or go back and take away rights. But what do you do with the 40% of the people in those areas who rely on the federal government to protect some of their rights? Okay, well, first of all, I am in my pantheon of heroes, of people I really respect as having been unique human beings who contributed beyond, above and beyond, I would put Mahatma Gandhi. Wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, big heart, huge consciousness, loved everybody, father of his country. He tried to keep his country together by force, and he failed. So with a very heavy heart, he agreed to the partition of India into Pakistan India. That was not his idea. He was against it. But he realized that the only way that India could be a free nation would be if they allowed the Muslims to leave and form their own country. That wasn't his idea. And he fought it as long as he could. But he realized he could never stop the violence. And if Mahatma Gandhi can do that, so can we. Now, in his case, what he said is anybody living in Pakistan who's a Hindu, you can cross over the border and live here. Any Muslim living in India can cross over to Pakistan. Wrote that into the deal when they set up the two countries. I would go further. I would give people five years. I would say you have five years to make up your mind. And if you choose to leave your home in Selma, Alabama, because you want to be in the north, they, we will set up a relocation fund that will give you the money to pay for that house so you can buy a new house in the north of equal value. And we will retrain you for a job that you can find of the same or more money, which won't be hard because the south is underemployed with good paying jobs. And, and I'll be happy to explain where those jobs will come from. Just so people know, I don't know if I've ever, I don't think I've said this before on the show. We talk often about how many jobs in Germany solar has created as they shut down nukes and as they reduce coal. Uh, basically 10 for 1. Uh, the statistic came out last week in the state of California. 25,000 new jobs were created from the solar industry. And these are middle class paying jobs. They're good paying jobs. Which represented half of all the new jobs created in California last year, 2015. So, so what they're saying was 50,000 new occupations, in effect, got created. Of those, half of those occupations were solar installers, yeah. solar-related. Now, what I'm saying is we can retrain people as they come to the North if they want to be involved in the green economy. Love to. Because they won't be voting against it. They'll be voting to support it. And if there's anybody in, uh, let's say, Dearborn, Michigan, that wants to go to Selma or Birmingham, great, we'll buy their house for what it's worth and we'll let them buy one down there, again, with the relocation fund. But, and then we'll let them use the same passport for five years. But at the end of five years, they'll have a passport that says Confederate States of America and we'll have one that says United States of America. And they'll have their border, 
Trump can build a wall if he wants. I don't think he'll want to pay for it, but he can build his wall there. We don't really care. It won't be our problem. And if they want to ban women from voting, if they want to ban Muslims from moving there, if they want to keep women pregnant, ban abortion, uh, deny the vote to blacks, deny the vote to browns, they can do that. It's their country. They can do whatever they want at that point as the five years ends. And everybody who wants to resort and become part of the future comes to the North. The North will take off. We'll be like the Phoenix rising. It'll be so amazing. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful they would do it. And please, Texas, secede from the Union and take everybody with you who wants to go. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thought experiment for sure. And uh, actually implementing it could be closer than you'd think, unfortunately, given some of the trends we've seen lately. Um, I don't want to go too much into uh, the, the step away from facts in uh, the presidential race. Uh, why, don't, why don't we start with what's going on in the U.S. economy, Ronaldo, and do an overview there, and then talk a little bit about, uh, as a segue, talk a little bit about unemployment and some of the rhetoric going on there. Well, I mean, first of all, I can't, I got I to talk about unemployment first. Yeah. So where, I mean, first of all, you know, Donald Trump makes stuff up, and the fact that it bears no relationship to reality doesn't seem to bother him. In fact, you know, wasn't it Herman Goebbels, uh, the propaganda minister for Hitler who said that if you want people to believe something and it's a big lie, tell it frequently. And sooner or later they believe it because they keep hearing it told. So Trump has a, hand, a tendency of doing this. And, and by the way, I'm not picking on Trump as a uh, independent voter. I'm picking on him because that's what all the Republicans are saying. I mean, Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz, Rubio, Kasich, they're all saying the same thing. Yeah. Trump's a liar. He lies all the time. Now, one of the things he lied about recently on the debate was he said that unemployment was not 4.9%. It was, he'd read 25, 30%. He might even heard as high as 40%. Now, I got a question. If there was 35% unemployment in America today, do you think you would know it? Given that the unemployment rate of the Great Depression was only 25%. Right. So if we had 35%, I think you would know it. In fact, I don't think anybody listening to this program would know it. I think you could be a hermit in the woods and know it. Okay. So that's clearly palpably crazy talk. The unemployment rate is 4.9%. Why is it that Trump says this other false number? Because they, the Republicans believe that they're going to win with fear. They can't run against the economy because we're the only growing economy in the Western world of any consequence. Now, China's going to grow at 6% this year, which is fabulous because 6% is twice what we're going to do. I'll get back to mine in a second. India's going to grow at least 6%. Europe's going to grow at about 1%. And we're going to grow at 25 to 3% at least. So and maybe more. So where's the recession, I ask? Where's the unemployment? It certainly isn't in the United States of America. Now, if you want to talk about what is called underemployment, we could go on all day because with the amount of money we pay to the underclass, we are creating underemployment. In other words, if you could make a livable wage working at Walmart, we wouldn't call you underemployed. If you could make a decent minimum wage, say $15 an hour at Burger King, we wouldn't call you underemployed. So until we get to a $15 minimum wage nationally, and then higher as inflation kicks in, until we get to the point where we recognize that we are consistently sacrificing the interests of the lower classes and the middle class to the interests of the upper class. What do I mean by that? Who gets to go to college if everybody's got to pay? Only the rich. So only the rich get to get out of poverty. 
Who's going to have a better job? Who's going to have better grades in school? A child from the projects who has one meal a day if they're lucky and wakes, goes to sleep with gunshot in their ears and wakes up to the fear of walking across an open field because they could get shot by gangs? Who, or a kid in Westport, Connecticut? No question, the kid in Westport's got the angle, the advantage. I really believe, really deeply believe, that the beginning of a political solution to this country's ills, all of which are available, is we have to be willing to start thinking through facts and when they are distorted, we have to say, wait a minute, that's not true. And if you're gonna talk like that, we can't believe you about anything because if you're gonna say something that foolish, everything you say is questionable. So let me go to our GDP. Yeah. So last year we did about 2.4% after adjustments of the GDP. The US did, yeah. Yeah, US. The Barron's Roundtable of Economists projected for this year 2.5%. So one-tenth of 1% higher. I predicted on a show, the last show, three to three and a quarter percent. A very sophisticated uh, financial advisor, who I respect greatly, called me on that and said, Ronaldo, how can you say three to three and a quarter percent when the Barron's Roundtable is calling 25 and I gave him the following answer, which I think is the accurate answer. What is, what is the Barron's Roundtable first? Oh, it's a group of economists that service the business community with, with a, by providing a, a, an average number. So they take every one of the economists in the Barron's Roundtable, and they, what do you think the number's going to be? What do you think the number's going to be? They put them all together, they divide it by the total guys sitting there. That's the number. So 2.5% represents the consensus of people who are paid to give economic opinions to companies. And that 2.5% suggested growth is what they're predicting for 2016. I'm predicting something much higher, three to three and a quarter percent. How could I justify a higher prediction than these very wise people who are paid astronomical sums, I might have had. By the way, I get paid nothing for this. They get paid a lot of money. This is a very good living if you want to get this job, which, you know, I could have gotten that job, but had other important things to do that were honest. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. Here's why I think you're going to see a 3% or more year. Last year, we did not have the labor markets tightening. They're tightening now at 4.9% as we just touched on. Labor tightening means there's going to be less fluidity unless there's more money. So what you're starting to see already is that wages are increasing. That will lead to inflationary pressures. I believe, frankly, right now, inflationary pressures are far greater, potentially, than recessionary pressures. And that tightening of the labor market will mean that people will have more money to spend because there'll be more money paid to them by corporations. And since corporations are making all-time high profits anyway, they'll have the money to give them. And there won't be as much for the share owners, but still plenty to go around. So labor market's tightening, number one. Wages edging up as a result, number two. Consumption has been edging up. Now, People underestimate. We, we have, I think, 16 jurisdictions have raised the minimum wage this year, and Walmart, over and above that, gave it a raise to a million of its employees. Again, not the Walmart raise was nowhere near $15 an hour, but they gave a raise to all 1 million employees. All of that raising of the minimum wage and the Walmart raise is 100% spendable money, meaning the people who got that cash don't have the luxury of saving it. They, they are living paycheck to paycheck. In fact, sometimes worse. They're, they're taking a horrendously 
expensive loans from payday lenders because they don't have enough money to pay their bills on a daily basis. So they're going to spend all that money. And as they spend all that money, it's going to get multiplied through the civilian economy. Now, when you add to that, that the price of gasoline has dropped by, what, 35 40%, all of that they're saving. So now that money's available to spend. So when you look at all that money swashing around in people's hands now, what you're going to find, and it's already started, service industries are doing better. Restaurants are up. My favorite example is McDonald's. I mean, people say, well, why is McDonald's doing 5.1% better after all these years of doing poor? And they say, well, because they added breakfast. No, actually, you can't raise McDonald's sales 5% by adding breakfast. Something else has to happen. And what happened was people could afford to come back now. And they did breakfast. So um, all of these things together, I think, are helping. Number two, we got the first budget, real budget bill passed in years last December. Half of that money will kick in in the second half of this upcoming year. The end of the sequester, yeah. End of the sequester. So now, and, that, and you've got tremendous del- delayed infrastructure spending. Um, look, look, at, look at Flint, Mission, for example. So, yeah, this is an important topic. I think this is really something you hit on, Ronaldo, when we were talking about the rundown. What is the idea of delayed infrastructure spending? It sounds pretty boring, but it's actually a pretty criminal act. Uh, you know, the idea that we would let our infrastructure rot under our feet, literally, and crumble uh, is just, it's the opposite of what previous generations did to make this country powerful and strong and functional for the, for the economy. Yeah. So if you take the state of California and you say, how many miles of new freeway have been added in the last, say, 10 years? And you say, what percentage of those miles were added because of infrastructure spending and what percent was added because of toll roads? you'd find the overwhelming percentage was toll roads. In other words, there's a, when, you ha, when you're the richest of the rich, when, when you're in the top 2%, you're always looking for how to make more money because that's how you got there. Or you inherited it and now you want to keep it. And you got people you pay a lot of money to keep you rich. So what you do is you look for ways to make more money on society, off the backs of society. So how do you make money off infrastructure? You wait till the roads are so bad that people can't drive on them because it's bumper to bumper. And you say, you know what, we'll build you one, but you got to pay to drive on it. That toll road only exists because we stopped building roads that were free. Do people forget that the interstate highway system was a gift to the nation from General Eisenhower? Okay, Ike put in the interstate highway system. He was a Republican. It was the right thing to do. It's not a party policy. It's not a partisan issue. To be able to move goods and people efficiently across America is exactly the description of why he did it. It would have been cool if you put a railroad next to it the whole way, but yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Well, that's, yeah, that's another story. <laughs> that's another example of infrastructure spending. But, you know, bridges and roads and, and highway. I mean, you said tunnels. Highway, tunnels and railroad. Hey, and, you know, there's a crisis waiting to happen in New York City. Do you know that that subway system, there's parts of it that are 125, 135, 140 years old? Wow. Well, the, even just the electric, electricity system here in, in Santa Barbara was built in 1920. Right. And it's failing all the time. Exactly. And my daughter was out power Sunday night. So... What happens when you have a system like, and, and Flint, Michigan is complicated because Flint, Flint not only was an infrastructure issue, it was pure greed and stupidity. In the same time with the governor of Michigan, Snyder, who I think, by the way, should be indicted criminally. Absolutely. He should be in jail. He should be in jail waiting trial. Anyway, what happened with, with, with um, Flint is not only did they not spend for a safe water system, in order to save something like $100 a month or 
hundred dollars a day. Hundred dollars a day, I think yeah. it was. Hundred dollars a day. They switched the supply of water from where it was safely coming from the, from a, a lake to a, a source of water where the mineral content of the water running through the pipes caused the pipes to corrode such that the lead was released from the pipes. And it's a totally uh, predictable outcome. Totally predictable and predicted and disclosed. Like what, eight months ago? In fact, the governor received memoranda saying this is going to have lead levels. Do you know that the governor let them put a special water filter in the government offices in Flint so they wouldn't have to drink the water? But all of the people of color who live in Flint, okay, they all got screwed. All, now, all the white people too, but yes, there's, it's a 50 or 60% black city. Right. But there were, everyone in the whole city got screwed. And the Except, white people yeah. in that city tend to be people that are lower economic. True. Flint does not have a high rent district. Absolutely. So what you're saying is that the poorest people in our country, who are the most defenseless, were preyed upon by the wealthy. And in the same time he was making that decision to do that to the people of Flint to save a lousy hundred bucks a day, they passed a bill to lower the taxes on the wealthy. So it tells you what the game's about. In fact, when I was a kid growing up, they used to say, if you want to know who made the rules, see where the cash ended up. You know, if you want to know who's running the game, figure out where the cash ended up, and you can be pretty sure that's where it came from. That's the golden rule. That's the golden rule. Who has the gold makes the rule. So I think we are at a place in time now where we know that 54% of our bridges are unsafe. We know that we haven't built a decent railroad, and we who pioneered railroads in the 1800s. Okay? And we know that when we did that, by the way, and didn't you do a chart, Matt, where you found out that once we connected at Promontory Point, the GDP of America went up by like 400%. Something amazing like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't huge jump. Because we connected the country. Okay, well, the, the same thing is going to happen again if we build decent railroads. The same thing is again is going to happen if we, like right now, if you live in Los Angeles, California, and lots of other parts of the country, you're spending so much time stuck in traffic, your money's being absorbed by gas. Your air's being polluted by, by idling engines. That's just your, incredibly inefficient. Your time is yeah. being wasted. You've got metal sitting there. I mean, this is the most insane system. And why is it? Because a very greedy small 1% or 2% wants you to become so frustrated that they can go to your elected official and say, we'll solve the problem with a toll road or a toll bridge or a toll this or a toll that. Why is it that we don't expect what Republicans offered us back in the 50s, which is that the government would do this? Yeah. In yeah. fact, a conservative would agree with Eisenhower. That was a conservative move. Well, that's the great thing about these issues. And it sounds like, you know, we keep bringing up Republicans as if they're the only bad guys here. But I would say that the Democratic Party has deeply neglected its responsibility to its base and to the people who made that party great. At yeah, one point. but I don't think it's the same. I well, think it's, it it's, isn't the same, but let me, let me finish my point. But... I just want to I, I want to say that there are many decent people who identify as Republicans who see this the same way that the the country used to be great and it, and it's falling apart. I, I actually spent the weekend having a good conversation with some of them uh, out in the kind of Central Valley of California, and we agreed on almost everything about the values of uh, and, and I also am a registered independent, but uh, I tend to lean pretty progressive as as those listeners to the radio show know. The, the questions about our priorities as a government and, and where we should be putting our money and how social safety nets should exist uh, in order to make sure people don't fall all the way through the cracks as just a, as just a value to society. Uh, we, we could share those. And the big one was criminal justice reform. Uh, you know, libertarians and, and really thinking people who identify as Republicans 
totally understand that we have too many people in, in prison. At a huge cost. At a huge cost. And a huge cost not only in terms of money, but also in terms of uh, human potential, human energy. No, that's all true. And, and again, I, see, I don't, when I'm picking on Donald Trump and the current cast of characters in the Republican Party, and by that I'm including Trump, Cruz, Rubio, um, Carson. I mean, I call that the, that's, that's not right wing. That's just crazy. That group of people is just crazy. Now, I may or may not agree with everything Jeb Bush would do as president, but I think that Jeb Bush actually is a guy who is my way of thinking of a Republican. Uh, John Kasich reminds me of a Republican. Uh, I think if Ronald Reagan walked into a room with John Kasich and Jeb Bush, I think he could feel comfortable. I think he'd be thrown out of the room by Trump, Rubio, and Cruz. And that, that's not just Ronald Reagan. Barry Goldwater's daughter said that he couldn't belong to the current party. So it, it's not the Republican Party. I, I think, you know, in fact, I think even the media got this right. The Republican Party was hijacked. Now, how they did it themselves by creating the Tea Party, that's, they, that's their bad. They goofed up. <laughs> Miscalculation. But at the end of the day, the people running for the presidency of the Republican Party who command probably two-thirds of the votes in the primary so far, two-thirds of the Republican Party, are so whacked, they're not even a consistent philosophy. And what do they have in common? They, they do represent, and I'm not supporting Bernie Sanders currently, but they represent what Bernie calls the billionaire class. That's who they work for. They're clear on that. And because they're professional politicians, or in the case of Trump, a professional entertainer, who's getting rich on this election. I mean, he's the smartest movie ever made was to run for president. He's going to make so much money on this. So, it'll be huge. It'll, it'll be, be huge. 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 <laughs> Anyway, the point of the story is... Bernie says it that way, too. Just that's right. I know. Wait, so I said it. <laughs> and he, he Trump says too. He, Bernie said it on purpose at the New Hampshire primary victory speech. Yeah. Ooh, and I say, huge, huge. <sighs> anyway, the point is, uh, I want to just f- finish up. I'm not picking on anything that Nelson Rockefeller, frankly, Barry Goldwater, although I wouldn't have agreed with bombing the nuclear in the north of Vietnam, but you know, Goldwater, Reagan... Um, Certainly Rockefeller. Uh, and do, I can think of dozens and dozens and dozens of really reputable, outstanding Republican politicians over the years who will have no place currently in this party. And, and that's tragic because I think we do better when there's a strong Republican Party and a strong Democratic Party and, frankly, a strong independent movement. Uh, I do believe there's a great deal of a consensus with uh, libertarians. I mean, the Cato Institute is aligned on many things that you would agree with. Uh, I think that most people like the idea that if they could pass a one penny tax on every stock that gets traded, that that small tax would pay for every kid to go to college for free in America. I think that's a good thing. I think that the, the nine people that got insurance this year that never had health insurance before, or the 17 million in total that have come on board since Obamacare, I think they're real happy. Okay? Yeah. But, but we have to now stop and say, you know what? If we don't bring a halt to this, to this runaway greed, Greed is not good. Greed is not good. Greed is bad. And if we don't take and halt this runaway greed and halt the lack of civility, if Donald Trump was in this room right now, I would not yell at his face. I would not scream at him. I wouldn't tell him he can't come in because he's got red hair. Okay? I would say, hey, you know, I really disagree with you. I think you're really fundamentally not doing a good thing and you're a very greedy guy. And I hope people don't vote for you. I'm not going to shoot you. I'm not going to tell you you're going to get deported. I'm not going to tell you I'll build a wall around you. That's all crazy talk. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just want to tie the two thoughts together too. You know, I was I was thinking about this on on, on my commute today. And 
infrastructure is what creates a lot of the value of our communities. Uh, you know, all these homes in Flint, Michigan are now worthless because yep. they're worth less than it costs to repair the pipes so they can have water in their houses. And no one uh, wants to live there. And no one wants to live there. And, and I was also thinking that democracy in and of itself is a form of infrastructure. Uh, you know, these ideas that we have and our shared understanding and our ways of and practices, and, and just like our neglect of infrastructure or physical infrastructure, undermining democracy for, for a little while and in small ways might not immediately have catastrophic effects. But each of those little cuts and each of those little dings in democracy and, and the, then we have the big ones like Citizen United, they, they really do add up. And at some point we get to a tipping point, as you're describing, where we enter a plutocracy. We've um, entered it. And, and, you know, I think we have entered it at the national level and at most state levels. I think there's some democracy left at local levels. And I think that there's a possibility of a rev uh, reviving democracy, but it's really going to take a coherent political movement. Yeah, that plus, you know, it's going to take a little luck because you now have, what, I think 17 states, 16 or 17 states have put significant bar barriers in place to voting registration. And that's on top of additional states who bar people from voting who have ever been convicted of a crime. I don't know where that comes from. But, you know, you pay your debt to society, then you can't vote. So, and when you think that people of color disproportionately go to jail, that means people of color are disproportionately being banned from voting. So there's a lot of vote rigging going on. And I saw a statistic last night that in one state alone, a half a million people, I think it was Wisconsin, was it Wisconsin? One, Wisconsin and Texas, one was 300,000, one was 500,000 people, will not get to vote who are eligible voters just because they don't have state-issued IDs and they are eligible voters. So, so there's a lot of manipulation Absolutely. going on at the state yeah. level. I mean, one thing that I love about this election cycle is that it's so much is on the table that is never talked about. And that's one of the things that these wild card kind of out, out, way out from one side or another left field or right field really do bring to the table, which is a, a, a real possibility in the discourse. I, I'm just enjoying it, even though it's, it's also very scary. Hey, I think, look, I think Trump's doing us a favor because what he's doing, because he's such a caricature, is what he's doing, he's, he's making it so glaringly apparent that he stands for the forces of regression. So do you want to progress or do you want to surrender to the billionaire class? It gets pretty easy. And again, I'm not voting for Bernie Sanders. I'm not supporting Bernie. So it's not like I'm echoing Bernie so I can sound good. No, I mean, it's true that he, when Bernie's right, he's right. Trump is part of the billionaire class, and that is who's running the country. And what we have to ask ourselves is, if we're going to remain a democracy, if we want to be a democracy, we've got to go back to one man, one vote, one woman, one vote. So let's shift now to talk a little bit about the international economy, because uh, there's no better uh, part of the international economy to talk about than oil prices when you're talking about democracy. <laughs> right. So let's talk about that. So first of all, anybody who spins, and almost all the media is now spinning this current lie that the oil industry is pushing out, and the lie is that somehow the decrease in oil prices is hurting the global economy. Nothing could be further from the truth. There isn't one scintilla of truth to that. And that's one of the reasons why people should not panic over the stock market. That's a manipulation, and it'll come around because the fundamentals are strong. The fundamentals say that when you aren't when you aren't getting huge amounts of money sucked out of your wallet by the oil company so you can spend it on your butcher, your baker, and your candlestick maker, the economy does better, not worse. And in fact, in the same day, in the same publication where I saw a concern that the oil industry was going to lose something like, I don't know, it was 25, 30,000 jobs in one thing, and then another one said 200,000 across the nation. In that same publication, 
it gave the statistics on job growth that month was in excess of the 245 in the one month. So we are growing jobs every month and have been doing so for what? How many months is now? I don't know. Uh... It's, it's for at least how many years? It's gone back to 29, I think. So, 2009? I think it's 2011. I think we started doing job growth in 2009-2010. So say roughly six years, seven years. And we've been doing it every month, consistently. And that's been without the government hiring anything because there was a sequester on for most of that time. So we, we basically have been doing a great job of growing jobs. Yeah, it's consistent since the second quarter of 2010. Right. There you go. So that's six years. Now, that growth in the economy of jobs is happening even as we continue to speak and even as oil prices have been plummeting. So all of this baloney that oil prices dropping is bad for the economy is absolutely that, baloney. It's great for the economy, and the longer it stays, the better. Now, here's the fun one. So today I look at the Financial Times of London, and the front page story is that Russia has got an agreement with Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, and this is, the, this is like page one lead story. They've got an agreement to freeze oil production at January levels. Okay? And then uh, I see that there's another article in USA Today talking about the same thing and saying that maybe in addition to Venezuela, Saudi Arabia would be cutters in there as well. Well, I just laugh at these stories because if you freeze it at the same level it was in January, you're still overproducing the demand. And that's before you even put Iran in the, po- in the, in the puzzle. So the last week, the very first shipment of Iranian oil to Europe arrived in Europe since the sanctions were lifted. So now you got a new country pumping, Iran. You've got Iraq starting to begin the process of stabilization. You've got all these other forces that can't afford to cut their production because they're running out of cash. And even if you were to freeze the January levels, that just means the price won't fall as quickly, but it ain't going to go up. So we, we know that oil was at $29 a barrel today. It was at $27 a day or two ago. It's possible it could bump up to 35 I've said that for a while. I could even make a case it could get as high as 45 I can't make a case for anything above that. And I could make a case it'll get down to 26 But it isn't going substantially up. That's for sure. So I would say the best chances that you can expect is that oil will go sideways or slightly down or very slightly up, but nothing more than that. So that means that the situation you have today is what you're going to be living with through all of 2016, and that's great. That's a very big stimulus to the economy. Now, some places, like North Dakota, where their, quote, man camps are empty. Um, Those are just camps full of men, right, for oil working? Uh, they were. Oil production. Yeah, temporary structures. Yeah. Yeah, and what's happened is they're now, a lot of them are empty. But that doesn't mean all those guys are unemployed. It means they went home, and they're reemployed back home. And i got to tell you, in Williston, Williston uh, North Dakota, which is the epicenter of the sh- shale and fracking boom, a lot of the people who live there are saying, thank God. We, we, they couldn't keep up with having to build enough schools, enough roads, enough everything. And the conditions were horrible there. The conditions were horrible. So now they're getting a breather and they're getting a life again. So they're not actually all that upset in Williston. And by the way, unemployment in Williston, last time I checked, was below 6% today. So since the man camp's empty, it's below 6% in Williston. So, so let me just go for, here for a second. Why, why is it that oil companies are lying to us? about the price of oil being linked to, to growth? Because they want you to believe that burning more oil is better for you than burning less oil. They want you to believe that we should we should help them. Like, we bailed out the banks. Why wouldn't we bail out the oil companies? i got to tell you something. The next wave that's coming, you're going to see bankruptcy. Well, we're already starting to see a wave of bankruptcies in the oil patch. 
it's going to get worse. And what you're going to see is now some regional banks could be in serious trouble because they took oil in the ground as an asset against which they lent, and now they can't collect. Um, but, you know, I, I continue to say the most traumatic thing we would suffer through, and it would be traumatic for a while, but it would be healthy in the end, is when the first serious fund goes, oh, my God, Exxon's worth a fraction of what we thought because there's as much water on their balance sheet as there is oil. The, the way their balance sheets are calculated is they look at recoverable reserves. So what's in the ground that they can recover? Well, if what's in the ground can be recovered, but only at a price greater than what it, you can sell it for, it will never be recovered. It'll be left there. So all of a sudden, it's not an asset. When you, when you re-examine the balance sheets of every single major oil company, you're going to see as much water as oil just about. So that means that you're going to see a massive disruption in the markets. You're going to see, for example, the Dow Jones, which is heavily weighted with the oil stock. Um, you're going to see there that uh, that's going to reflect poorly. Do you see this actually com coming to pass? You think this is happening oh, soon? Yeah, it's unavoidable. Soon, no. We just don't know when. No, I think, uh, look, well, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have an election. Hey, wait, just pause you. This kind of happened in the coal industry, is that right? People yeah, started actually, to realize that coal went upside down. Coal, people saw it coming for longer because there were so many indications so we knew that King Coal wasn't king anymore 15 years ago. 10 years ago, we knew that the owning a coal mine was very limited upside. Five years ago, we learned that owning coal at all probably was not economic. And just in the last 12 months, are you learning about the problems that if you're a coal company, even if you're not making money, you still have all kinds of liabilities for stuff that you did, tailings and everything else that are out there. They got a lot of environmental oh, yeah. pollution. Coal ash, coal, coal ash, all that yeah. stuff has got to be dealt with. So I would say that uh, you know, coal's gone into a negative over a 15-year period, whereas what I'm talking about, uh, oil's only been in a severe downturn for less than two years, right? Was that $120 a barrel a little over two years ago, right? Yeah. So it's it's been in a severe downturn, and it's oil has seen many cycles of wild fluctuations in price. Uh, and they've always corrected themselves up until this one. And what I said on the show in March or April of 2014 is I correctly said this time isn't like all the rest. This time is different because the demand function will continue to drop even as the economy grows. And that's what's happening. And it's happening because green energy is becoming more desirable for more people in more countries faster than the demand for energy grows and because we're learning how to limit the amount of energy we waste. Got it. All right. So you think that day is coming in oil? That's pretty exciting. You know, that's that's one of the things that could actually break the back of the grip of power of oil companies on, over the climate. Um, you know, talking about international relations, Ronaldo, a big thing that's coming up now, though, is this Zika virus that we haven't even talked about yet uh, off the show. I just wanted to see if you had thoughts about kind of what the what this demonstrates about a warming and, and more interconnected world and what do you think it pretends for, for growth and, and the possibility of pandemics? Well, I think, first of all, you know, the idea of pandemics, we started talking actively about a couple of years ago with swine flu. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And people started saying, gee, you know, wow, we live in an interconnected world and somebody's sick over in China that, you know, ate a sick pig. And, and then there was the swine flu. After that, there was the chicken thing. The remember bird that? Flu, yeah. The bird flu. And that's the, the bird flu spread. And last year we had a turkey flu here, remember? A billion, yeah. I don't know how many billions of birds were killed. Anyway, the point is, 
for the last, I'm going to say, nine to ten years in academic journals, for the last five years in popular publications like USA Today or what the Economist, whatever, um, New York Times, for at least five years now, people have been talking about the likelihood of pandemic increase because conditions are changing. And the example that was usually given, which applies directly to Zika, by the way, was as the planet warms, places that were too cold for mosquitoes to go before, mosquitoes can go to now. And if you live in one of those places, like the slopes of Kilimanjaro, and you've been living there as one of a bunch of indigenous people for you know hundred or ten thousand years, you don't have any antibodies for malaria. So when that malaria bug comes by way of a mosquito, because the mosquito now migrates much higher up the mountain, it bites you, you die. And hence, that's the big push that Bill Gates and others have had. In fact, I'm very proud of my dear friend Ray Chambers, who has been the ambassador in charge of malaria eradication globally for the UN now for a number of years. Uh, they, They really jumped on that because they saw the spread of this pandemic direct related to the spread of mosquitoes because of climate change. Now let's apply Zika to that. So what's happening with Zika is exactly what we feared. Mosquitoes are going to climates where it stays warmer all year. So you now have the Zika virus. And by the way, the Zika virus is transmitted by the same mosquito type that transmits the dengue virus, the dengue flu, dengue fever. Dengue? Dengue fever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And a couple other things that are pretty rotten. So uh, in, 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 in the island of Hawaii, here in America, for the first time ever, we had a dengue fever outbreak. So, and it's significant. I mean, the big island of Hawaii, hmm. down at Kealakekua Bay, and to a lesser extent in Kona, from there south, there's a serious infestation of dengue fever. Wow. Now, which has already hurt tourism to Hawaii and will hurt other things. And by the way, it's a very quick hop from the big island of Hawaii to Oahu. So, how did that happen? It happened because of aircraft. Aircraft that flew in from other parts of the world. It only took one mosquito to survive the, the trip. Maybe two. A couple. They they end up biting. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you've oh, got... people. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay? Yeah. So, so the, the point of it is that the Zika virus, which is being spread by this new, very, very strong mosquito, um, is a direct result of climate change. Will we get on top of Zika? Yes, we will. For two reasons. One, the type of virus this is, I think, is subject to vaccination. I think it can, and, and the, the big farmer will love this because it's a vaccination, a vaccine everybody will buy. So they're going to love this. This will make them a lot of money. They're gonna, they're, big farmer wins again. So there will be a vaccine. The second reason we'll get this under control is because there are a lot of really interesting experiments. The World Health Organization is talking about releasing a bunch of irradiated Zika carrying mosquitoes. So they're sterile, so they will interbreed with the other ones, and that'll kill the population off. In Brazil today, as we speak, 250,000 members of the armed forces are going house to house, training people, giving out leaflets, explaining about standing water, spraying. So, I mean, humanity has mounted its response. But what will the damage be when this is finally, you know, addressed properly? Mm -hmm. Well, let's start with the... I think they say there's already 5,000 children in Brazil alone that have myeloencephalitis. There's this brain size that's small. It's amazing. The pictures are just horrifying. Which means that all, if not all of them, I think all those kids are going to have to be supported the rest of their natural life. Many of them won't live that long, but all at, at a huge cost to society. And those are just the ones that have been born. We don't know how many are pregnant coming through like that. 
So that's an enormous cost to the country of Brazil and to every country where Zika breaks out, which is most of Latin America's breaking out in now, and now Florida. Uh, and soon I think it'll come to the rest of southwestern California. So that's a cost. But here's another cost. What do you think it's going to do to the, the, the Olympic Games in Rio? Right. Athletes aren't going to want to go there. Would you like a free ticket to go to Rio to catch the Zika virus? If you're a female and you're capable of being pregnant, the answer is no right off the bat. And you know, last time I checked, males like to bring females to sporting events, like the Olympics. <laughs> they also have women's, women's games, too. Yeah. So my point is, the men are going to not come as often. Absolutely. And then last but not least, we now have proof that the Zika virus can be transmitted sexually. I heard that, yeah. So that, well, it's, been, it's, been, it's actually been documented. Yeah. So now, not only if you're a pregnant woman should you avoid Rio de Janeiro, you should avoid it if you're alive and breathing because your skin could be the receptor that a Zika buyer could be transmitted by a mosquito or sexually you could transmit it. So it, it's clear that this is going to do massive damage to a country, Brazil, which is already on its knees yeah. and probably to the rest of Latin America in the process. So, Ronaldo, before we wrap up here, I want to... Invite our audience. Uh, you know, this this today's show is a little different, and I think that it's a sign of the times. We really have a, a lot to to get into, and it's 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 important to me to have these conversations, and I hope it's useful to those of you listening. Uh, if it is important, and you want to support our work here on this show as well as our other work at the World Business Academy, please visit us at worldbusiness.org. We have a twenty five dollar a month membership. If you click on donate. That'll help support this activity and our efforts in the energy field. Um, Ronaldo, do you have any other closing shot thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I got asked a lot in the last, gosh, the last two weeks I've been asked constantly where to put your money. People always ask me where to put yeah. their money right now. And uh, as I said on the show today, I think the risk of inflation is greater right now than the risk of recession. So that's a clue. Number two, I do believe that, um, that interest rates will be going up. Uh, therefore, I would not be in bonds, and I think the market would agree with that. Uh, I continue to recommend solid dividend stocks, so companies that are solid, uh, that are producing a 3% or better dividend. There's many in that category, many, many in that category. And pick a stock of a company that does something that you believe in or does it in a way that you think is uh, appropriate. Don't pick a company that's making money just because they're making money, because those sometimes come a cropper. So I'd say... Um, Look for a federal funds rate to go up by a quarter point more this year. Probably a half a point. I'm not sure if they're going to go up a full point. Uh, they're up a quarter point now. Uh, I think that the inflationary pressures are significant. I think if you've been putting off buying a house, better do it sooner rather than later because the interest rates you'll pay for it in a year will be much higher. So you can afford more house for your dollar right now. If you were thinking about buying a commercial property, I would say do it because the country's going to grow by, I'm going to say, at least 3% this year, economy. Uh, if you were thinking of buying a, and are capable of buying a multi-unit dwelling, many people think that they're overpriced at this point. I think selectively you can still get a good buy, and I think renting is still going to be a source of revenue for several years to come that's very attractive, and you'll be able to get good returns. So there's lots of places to go with your money. And if anybody listening has any specific questions about a specific industry, please let me know. I will comment on individual companies, but I will not tell you whether, uh, I, I try not to, to tout a company per se. Uh, I'm more interested in an industry or I'm interested in a principle that I can extract from a company. So if I say to you, for example, I think that the decision Ford Motor Company made to, 
to get a large percentage of their cars to be uh, alternative fuels, as an example. That would be a way of saying to you, watch the whole car industry because more and more alternative fuel vehicles are coming out, more electrics, et cetera. It's not saying go you know, buy Ford or not buy Ford, although I think Ford's a good company and I think it's, 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 it's undervalued at this point in time. Uh, but you can say the same thing about General Motors. I mean, General Motors is doing some really smart things with cars. I mean, if their, their new electric car that's coming to come in below the Volt uh, takes off, I mean, the Volt is very economic, but this new one? The holy, Volt, yeah. The Volt, yeah. The, I mean, with the Bolt and the Volt, GM has a very attractive lineup of electric cars that I think uh, would compete globally. Um, anyway, so those are the kinds of companies I'm interested in. Stay away from things like companies that are dealing with anything in the commodities world right now. Uh, stay away from companies that require exports for profit. So an example would be Caterpillar. Okay, you, you know you can't buy Caterpillar now because for several years exporting has been negative. The dollar is very strong. Caterpillar is not going to make as many tractors to sell in Armenia. So avoid Caterpillar. Now, those kind of questions. But if you have a question like a Caterpillar company or a GM or a Ford or a GE or whatever or some lesser known company that that I can extrapolate a general principle from, I'd love to talk to you about it. Yeah, so send your questions to info at worldbusiness.org. Again, that's info at worldbusiness.org. And until next time, uh, take care and listen up next month for the next episode of New Business Paradigms. Thank you very much, Ronaldo. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks, everyone.